everybody, welcome back to Experience by Design podcast, where we explore experience designs of all kinds. I'm Gary David. So how's everybody holding up? Hope you're hanging in there as the news and the new normal seems totally overwhelming. It's not surprising to hear that everyone's state of anxiety right now is pretty high, and that's probably a huge understatement. We're facing a very uncertain future. Turning on the news, which I recommend only doing in moderation, it is easy to get caught up in the frightening images, the horrifying metrics, as this pandemic spreads. And beyond the numbers of the ill and deceased are the unemployment numbers, which are unlike anything this country has ever seen. In two weeks, we have 10 million new filings of unemployment, unprecedented at any time. And things are only expected to get worse on all fronts. What feels like a lifetime is really only the beginning. And what a beginning it's really been. It wasn't like we were doing well to begin with in terms of our mental health and our anxiety. Even before this, levels of depression and anxiety were already high. And the good old days were, in fact, probably not that good in terms of how people were coping with their lives. In retrospect, it seems pretty good, but that's how life is. It always seems better um, the way things used to be than the way things are right now. People for some time have needed help with their mental health. And all this is at a time where we have limited number of mental health professionals. We just don't have the people to give help with the demand that's ever increasing. So in all this, enter digital psychiatry and electronic mental health tools. Now, technically speaking, digital psychiatry refers to any electronic device or mechanism through which people can get information about or assistance with their mental health issues and status. At the most basic level, it might be looking up information about a mental health condition that you might have, or even joining a virtual community around that condition. It can also include using mindfulness apps that one can download and use individually. If you go online to the Play Store or the iTunes Store, you can find any thousands of apps to help deal with any number of mental health issues. At a whole other level, conditions can potentially be tracked through interfaces uh, that we have on our phones and that we're regularly using, as well as tracked through back-end metrics like movement and screen time and even how, you know, mobility at going to different places. It's amazing when you look at it, how much we're being tracked all the time by our phones. And finally, in an Internet of Things world, devices in our homes might integrate together into a virtual dashboard to produce warnings when one of our, when we experience, I should say, a decline in our mental health. And our clinician or our healthcare provider can be alerted that something's going wrong and we need some intervention and some help. There's actually been stories like this where police departments have gone and done wellness visits or wellness visits uh, on people based on what was on Facebook. So that's quite a list around what is digital psychiatry. And it raises a lot of questions around what does it all mean for patients and clinicians, as well as caregivers and other healthcare professionals. I mean, does any of this stuff actually work? If you download a mindfulness app, does it actually make you feel better? If you download something to help with your depression, does it have any efficacy to actually improve how you're doing? How does it impact the clinical workflow and the clinical profession? And what does it all mean for privacy and security, especially if there's some company that's, you know, you don't know what the source code is and you're just giving this stuff away to whomever is now able to use it? To help answer these questions and other questions that we didn't even think about, we have Dr. John Toros, who's a psychiatrist and director of the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center Digital Psychiatry Clinic here in Boston. I've known John for a couple of years now, been working with him around some of these digital uh, designs of these tools, and John has been engaged in this topic for a very long time. He has a degree in uh, computer engineering And he's been looking at how we can integrate digital tools into clinical care uh, from years and years ago. And through all this, he's been become one of the leaders in this field, serving on numerous professional boards and also being a sought after voice for how does this moment right now uh, shape how we are experiencing mental health in an electronic world. He also created his own app app called the LAMP app, 
which is an open source tool that clinicians and patients can use to track symptoms and the onset of chronic mental illness. I guess you can say he knows a lot about the topic. And we were excited when John could make some time as healthcare professionals are being really stretched to swing by the Experience by Design studio to talk with us about digital psychiatry, how to design digital experiences in clinical care, how digital psychiatry is shaping up in this COVID-19 moment, and what is the future of clinical mental health in a digital world. So we hope you enjoy our discussion. Big red record. Yeah, hit the big red record. So now we're going. So John, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you guys, Gary and Adam, for having me. It's an honor. You don't, well, let's not get carried away. I mean, <laughs> it's an honor for us maybe because you're a really popular guy right now. Is that safe to say that you're probably more popular right now than you've ever been perhaps in your entire lifetime? I don't know you that well, but you seem like you're pretty popular right now. I think we'll say the topic that I work on and study is popular right now. I think of telehealth and digital mental health. I don't think, unfortunately, that has translated down to me, but there's definitely interest in digital mental health here now and today. And I don't know if this has been your experience. I'm going to relate what's going on with me right now in education. And what that was involves everybody saying, you know, online education will never work. We can't do it. It's not going to be effective. Don't even try it. I don't want to hear about it. I'll never use it into, oh my God, everyone quickly get online as fast as possible and start doing it. And it seems to work. And it seems to kind of like, well, at least technologically work. And I mean, has that been what you've been experiencing around the digital psychiatric space where there was a lot of resistance, but now all of a sudden you're finding people clamoring to figure out how this thing is going to become a way of patients getting mental health care in the COVID-19 era? You know, I think that's exactly what happened. And the parallel is spot on. Last week, around March 16th and 17th, we began to see a lot of changes from the federal government around how telehealth was regulated and paid for. And in essence, without going into details, what the federal government did is reduced a lot of barriers to clinicians offering video visits or telehealth, including telemental health and telepsychiatry. So the government made it that you could actually temporarily offer video visits through FaceTime on your iPhone. They made it that reimbursement is equal to face-to-face care. They help with issues around not needing to see a patient for the initial time to be able to prescribe controlled substances. So really overnight, the barriers to implementation vanished. And of course, the clinical need to see people who can't leave their houses, who may need to be isolated, uh, grew and continues to grow. So kind of increased need and reduced barriers have led to kind of, I would say, the largest surge of interest in telehealth. I'm just going to limb and say ever in the history of the universe in the last week. Wow. The universe is a big thing. So that's that's pretty big. Mm -hmm. And I was just looking at like the top two, I just did a quick like, news search on digital psychiatry. Top two stories, coronavirus boost mental health app and chatbot usage. Second story, why you shouldn't just Skype your therapist. So, I mean, hmm. at least that's clear that we have usage going up, but why you shouldn't do it at the same time. Exactly. And that's probably like anything, right? Having more access to telehealth or having these apps available is a good thing. But that's only the first thing, right? Just because someone opens a hospital and puts up a sign that says, I'm a hospital, you're probably not going to walk in, right? You're going to say, are you a real hospital? What is your quality? What is your record? What is your brand? So I think we, we are going to see a lot of, especially kind of the app world, things putting up a shingle and saying, we're here to help. And again, that, that's a good first step. But there, there's a little bit more we're going to ask for than just saying, I'm here. Hmm. So what, what, what are some of the... Um, actually, well, real quick, I'm going to say, so the way you're, you're just as an audio coaching thing real quick, the way you're talking in your mic, you can talk a little bit to the left or right, just talk right past it because it picks okay. up a lot of the pop, the pop sounds. Um, and so it'll, it'll sound a lot cleaner. Um, just so just like right on the side of it. Um, I'll erase that I'm saying this. So, uh, what I'm, I'm really curious about, that's a really interesting point because as we see the increase of potential people hanging up a shingle saying, Hey, we're here to help. What are some of the things that, that, you know, in average 
you know, a healthcare needer should be should be looking for to try to find quality digital psychiatric health care? So I think if you're kind of doing video visits or telepsychiatry, if you're connecting with a licensed professional now via video or your smartphone in, re in real time, you can be pretty confident that's still going to be high quality. We're just changing the way that you connect. We're not changing what you're getting or how you're getting mm -hmm. it. So telemental health or telepsychiatry, again, the government has really lowered the barriers to accessing those services for both patients and clinicians. So that, that one, I wouldn't be as worried about the quality. Hmm. I think where it gets a little dicier and we have to kind of keep our guard up is looking at the app space of kind of saying, when we go onto the iTunes or Android store and type in stress, anxiety, hmm. depression, things that people do want and need help for, what are you actually getting when those come up? And I think we've seen in news some kind of concerning stories about people using these mental health apps and realizing they're not really mental health apps. They're actually branded as wellness apps. You say, well, John, who cares? It's a wellness app for, for some mental health app. What's the difference? Legally, there's a really big difference because these things that brand themselves as wellness don't really have to follow federal regulations about your privacy about kind of sharing your name, your information, selling that you're using a therapy app, telling people what different symptoms are. They, they really can determine the rules by what happens in the privacy policy. So the first thing is to say, who is actually offering this app? Where, where is it coming from? Do I trust this person? Are they actually going to protect my data? One thing that I always tell patients I work with, if the app is free, you're probably paying for it with your own personal health information. And again, some people may be okay with that. They may say, I'm a very public person, that's fine. But some people may not. And I think as long as people can make an informed decision, that's what matters. Hmm. That's the old saying, right? If, if, you're not, if you're not buying the product, that means you are the product, right? <laughs> exactly. And in this case, you're, you may be giving up a lot of data. Imagine if a mental health app wants to know your location, have access to your photos, what medications you're on and what your symptoms are, that's a lot of information to be giving up for something that may not be giving you very much in return. Yeah, I want to get to that, but I actually want to back up a little bit because we've been working together for a little while around this topic, and I was introduced to it through you, through a, a mutual acquaintance. But one of the things I've always wondered about with you is, I mean, how exactly did you end up doing this kind of work? I mean, how does, I mean, I'm looking at your IMDB page, otherwise known as LinkedIn, <laughs> Looking at, you know, going from a University of California, Berkeley engineering and computer sciences degree to being one of the co-founders for the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, digital psychiatric, you know, clinic. How does that happen? I mean, what was the trajectory that got you into not only working in this space, but also developing your own app, which I actually want to, you know, I actually want to talk about a bit more. So I think there's not as many physicians or people who go through medical school that have engineering backgrounds, but it's actually not a small minority. It's an increasing amount of people. And I think for any listeners who are engineers or have kind of done computer science, electrical engineering, it's a really fun and exciting field. And I think as I went through it in college at UC Berkeley, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the rigor. But I think sometimes spending all day in front of your computer programming can be a little bit isolating and lonely. And I think there was something when I was in college, I said, you know, what if you could bring the rigor, the problem solving, the scalability of engineering solutions and work in kind of a really team-based dynamic environment of healthcare? And I said, that would be really exciting. And if you think about the one area of healthcare that we really have so much more to learn, it's the brain. We're making really good progress in, in mental health, but there's still so much we don't know about the brain. So I think in medical school, I was looking at these different specialties and realizing the opportunity to really do fascinating work is happening in mental health and psychiatry. And having an engineering background, it was kind of a natural fit to say, how can we use technology to augment and extend? And I picked those words carefully, not, not to replace mental health, but to augment and extend, how can we use this data in a meaningful way to increase the therapeutic alliance between patients and clinicians to bring the right data into clinical visits? And 
I think there's really no other field in medicine that can benefit more from kind of the digital revolution and what technology has to offer than mental health and psychiatry. Now, is that is that partially just because we are approaching the brain, uh, you know, as you said, kind of we were it's it's a much more complex organism and set of processes that we are like learning to understand biologically, you know, emotionally, psychologically. And so is it part just that we're, we're, we kind of reached this nice apex of technological development and capacity as well as like, this is one of the areas that we're really making a lot of interesting advancements with neurology and neuroscience uh, in understanding this organ, or is it, is there something actually about the brain itself that, that lends itself to, you know, I don't know, like meshing really well with, you know, putting in new kinds of technology to understand what's going on. So I think in part, we've seen really impressive advances in neuroimaging with CT scans and MRIs. We can get very interesting pictures, images, networks of the brain. But what's been, been a lot harder is to kind of take all this exciting neuroscience research and figure out how does it impact people in real life? What is it when someone says that they're depressed, what does that mean? And what technology can do is help us get a more holistic, dimensional experience. And when someone says, I'm depressed, it's not that you're having symptoms. What well, is? That's part of it. But what is the environment? How does where you spend time impact your depression? How does different times of the day impact your depression? How does your social situation impact your depression? We can begin to look at these illnesses in a longitudinal way across different environments. And having this multi-dimensional picture that unfolds over time of how each person experiences kind of illness, stress, that's a very unique thing that we can do with technology, especially with the world of smartphones, of smartwatches and sensors. We can actually capture each person's unique trajectory of the illness and hopefully use that to offer personalized and preventive medicine. And that's something that until recently, you just couldn't do. The best we could do is give people a piece of paper and say, write down your symptoms. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And now your phone is going to write down your symptoms for you, whether you want it to or not. So that's, <laughs> that's a win, right? Or your thermostat or your light switch. And one of the things that we had presented on before together, which I, you know, it kind of blows people's minds and it freaks them out, which is always a nice party trick to do at a presentation, is this Internet of Things angle. And the example I give is imagine if you're on Spotify and only playing sad songs and that gets fed through your phone into your clinician's dashboard to say, I don't know, man, Gary's pretty, feeling pretty depressed. He's only playing like, you know, um, you know, something like really sad right now from like, you know, eighth grade, you better give him a call. So is that like the thing we're kind of looking for? Is that the vision where we're going to have all of our activity that can be captured through our electronic devices fed into a dashboard for someone to take a look at or is it you know what's the best data to communicate a person's mental state at the right time you know i think it's going to be the latter when if anything in life right if someone gives you all the data all the time figure out what's important what's not important what signal what's noise really becomes really challenging Instead, if we kind of work to say, you know, you're going through a rough patch, let's talk about the stressors together, let's figure out what more information we want to get, let's figure out how technology could help us get that information, let's make a plan of how we're going to use it to improve your care, what we're going to do, it. what is the action plan. So I don't think we need all the data all the time, we need to write data at the right time. And I think that's what we're beginning to hopefully move towards, but definitely we're still in the early days towards that vision. And it feels a little bit, I mean, whenever we talked about this, you tell me if I got this right or not, and feel free to tell me if I don't have it right, it happens all the time. That, you know, when we talk about, you know, digital psychiatry for like mental health issues or mental illness. It's such a broad brush to almost become meaningless. And what I mean by that is this, some guy going, yeah, I'm really depressed right now because Tom Brady is no longer a patriot. I mean, that's at one extreme. And then you have the other extreme, which might be someone who has um, clinical depression and can't function. 
or if someone is schizophrenic or bipolar or borderline versus somebody who's experienced anxiety because the entire world seems like it's coming to an end. So how do we think about those, these tools for these different extremes of mental health situations? And is it better suited for one versus the other, or is it some of it's better for the one extreme versus another extreme? It's, I mean, certainly we know everyone experiences mental illnesses differently. People may have kind of different perceptions of these illnesses in, in different ways that they can happen to each person. I think if you kind of look for, if you focus on the people that may kind of have the most distress, the most impairment with, with these mental illnesses, people with kind of what we would medically call major depressive disorder, people that may have bipolar disorder, people that may have schizophrenia. I, I think that we're seeing that there can be a tremendous benefit for these people that have, there's actually work called serious mental illness that kind of encompasses depression, bipolar, and schizophrenia, but certainly anxiety. Again, serious doesn't imply kind of the degree of severity, but certainly anxiety disorders I would put in there as well. But I think that we're seeing that these people, these mobile devices technology can really help us understand and find a signal of people who are really experience these illnesses at the level that they may kind of be in treatment right now or kind of beginning to seek out treatment. As these programs get better and we're able to kind of find more subtle signals, I think the scope will increase. But right now, I think some of the most impressive, at least medical research, has actually been in schizophrenia, bipolar. We've seen exciting research in depression as well and anxiety. But I think we're learning that these technologies can be applicable to all all conditions in some sense, it's almost like a stethoscope if you consider it. It's not like a stethoscope only works for kind of people of one type of heart disease. Sometimes people may use it to kind of listen to bowel sounds. It's a tool. And I, I guess I'm trying to say how we use the tool is more important than kind of the conditions themselves. I think I need an app to tell me to get off of Twitter. Like, you know, Gary, you might want to get off of Twitter, go for a walk, you know, kind of calm down a little bit, put the phone down. Because that that seems to be my major source of anxiety right now is like looking at my Twitter feed. It, it's I funny, mean, actually. Yeah. There there was a very very simple example when I I teach a design research class, and, and one of the um, projects we did a year ago was having them diagnose around the news, and not diagnose mental health, but just understand like how do people experience the news. And so a lot of people found you know a year ago, obviously today too, that there is a lot of anxiety around Twitter or reading the news. And so they actually came up with this app they call Newsfroid that, that would pair with your smartwatch to note for elevated heart rate. Now, obviously, you can, you can only measure so much in this case with, with That's the, awesome. <laughs> what, your, with what your, uh, your watch does. But the idea was that and just kind of saying, like, if you're looking at if you're on certain apps like Twitter, um, you know, or, or news websites, yeah, it would, it would kind of measure for that idea. What was the point? Anyway, sorry. Total, total aside. Well, you want to you want even a better side. You hear about the guy that um, his his girlfriend found out that he, he was cheating on her because he was wearing his Fitbit while he was having uh, extra relational hmm. um, experiences, and and his uh, girlfriend, the story goes, saw that on his his elevated heart rate on his Fitbit. Interesting. <laughs> That's not quite the same noise. thing as you were describing, uh, yeah. Adam, but I think you know. it's you know similar. Yeah. Um, uh, you, but you, yeah, no, but, but John, I, I really liked your point in terms of, you know, technology is, is, you know, in this case, it's not a hammer so that everything you see is a nail, but it's more like it's a multi-tool that can be used in many different ways, you know, in that, um, it can be kind of pointed in, in, um, you know, across different kinds of symptomology and stuff. So I think one of the, one of the things I'm really interested with this too, is that, I mean, I, you know, so I don't know if it makes sense to like talk about the, the lamp app itself or something more specific with this, but, um, I'm really just kind of curious about, as you mentioned before, this question of the signal to noise problem is hard, the more data you get. And so what are some of the kinds of things like, is it things like elevated heart rate? Is it how people like how often they log into an app to say, here's how I'm feeling. Like, what are some of the kind of data points that you have so far found have been helpful in like collecting longitudinal information? It's a really good question. And what we've found in kind of on looking at kind of people's digital traces of information they may share with us, each person has a very different digital signal or digital phenotype, sometimes we call it, or digital fingerprint. Mm -hmm. And it's not, again, how many times you may turn on your phone or how many steps you may take. There, there's no threshold of too much or too little. What we found, though, it's change compared to your baseline 
that can kind of help us realize that you may be at more risk or things may not be going so well. And so we kind of, again, have to say, you know, what is normal for John? That's interesting. For the last two days, John has been different than his own baseline. Hmm. So we kind of found variance and change is more important than the absolute number. We also found that looking for multiple kind of digital signals changing together is much more predictive than one digital signal. So Mm. just because I had less step count on one day doesn't really mean anything. If I begin to see, wow, there's less step count, there's less sleep, there's less social activity, all kind of happening and trending together, that, again, it's almost common sense, right? You don't need an algorithm to tell you Mm-hmm. Something is more likely to be going on. That could be a good reason to call someone and say, hey, how things are going? Do you want to talk? Hmm. Yeah, and that, that makes sense too, because obviously it's like you never want to just say, right, you're not walking as much right now. It's like, yeah, well, I also can't go outside because it's COVID-19. Exactly. Uh, Gary's doing a puzzle. That doesn't mean he's now. <laughs> that means he's probably not taking many steps because he's engaging in some healthy cognitive activities. He, he's solving a problem of this puzzle. He, he's not depressed. I, he's... I really appreciate that reframing, John, which shows that you're a true professional because I was thinking about it as Gary is wasting a lot of time by doing this puzzle right now. Get back <laughs> to work, you lazy bastard. But no I like the reframing as a positive cognitive activity. Thank you yeah. for that. I think the you other thing bill for that. <laughs> that really makes a difference in kind of learning up these signals is the data quality. Again, we're talking about what signal, what's noise. Clearly, if you have noisy data, there's that old saying, right? Garbage in, garbage out. Hmm. So really getting higher data quality, which often leads means you need higher engagement and kind of higher user buy-in. But really engagement is probably one of the key things to make this whole system work. And then, you know, and this is this raises one of the key points, I think, which is how we actually got started talking to one another. These things are meant to be interventions to improve someone's mental health status, right? Or coping ability. Yet, as you've written about extensively and spoken about, they're not regulated in any kind of meaningful way. So while they're meant to be, to have an influence or impact on how you are doing or feeling through some kind of intervention, there's no real way of even doing clinical trials, or there've been very few clinical trials around how effective, useful, um, or beneficial or even harmful they are to the people who are using them. Exactly. I mean, it's good that it's easy for people to put an app up onto those app stores. It's good that people have a lot of choices. But certainly, again, when some of these apps may be harmful or not useful, even dangerous, I think it kind of, again, puts a kind of buyer beware mindset is a useful thing to do. I think if you type in as an example, I can try it now, schizophrenia into the iTunes store on my on an iPhone. Let's see actually what comes up. So I'm going to search, I'm going to go S-C-H-I-Z-O, schizophrenia. And the third app that comes up is schizophrenia. And if I click it, it says, this game will make you lose your mind. So we can tell oh. that this is a very stigmatizing game that's basically Pong with a medication. And again, that was number three. We, we mm. just did this. So that tells you there's some pretty concerning stuff shows up pretty quickly. This is on page 281,000, right? It's right. number three. And that's perhaps a more glaring example. But I think where it gets subtle, as we talked about, is who's getting to keep all of your personal health data? If you're actually telling an app your symptoms, maybe where you live, giving access to your camera, your contacts, your GPS. Microphone. Microphone, exactly. And the other question beyond that is, does it really work? If the app says, you know, you are going to get a course of cognitive behavioral therapy, you're going to get this evidence-based treatment, are you? Again, and I think that's a really tricky thing to evaluate and where sometimes it can be useful just even to show an app to a friend and say, hey, does this look right? Show it to your doctor, your psychiatrist, your therapist. Sometimes it can be helpful to get a couple of people's eyes and say, hey, does this look like something useful for me to use? The other interesting thing about a lot of these apps is there was a really cool 
research paper that came out where someone looked at engagement with mental health apps that were popular, ones that only had more than 10,000 downloads on the commercial app stores. And they said, of people who download these apps, what percent of them are still using them basically 10 days later? Do you guys want to take a guess at this number? So I'm going to guess zero. 20% zero. maybe. Any? I'd say 20 Let's go between zero and 20. We'll try round two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know, it's, it's like anything else. How many apps, if, you, if, if our listeners right now were going to go under their phone and just kind of scroll through the apps that they downloaded and don't use anymore? I mean, you let alone like with something like a dietary app or anything, there's a huge fall off in terms of people adopting these things. Just talking about patients now or users, right? Quote unquote users adopting these things as a part of their daily lives. Yep. Mm. And again, that number is actually 4% was the average. Wow. So if a hundred patients or people who may download these mental health apps, only 4% are actually using it at 10 days and using it was measured by opening it. That doesn't mean that you, you got better, <laughs> right? That just means you opened a darn thing. So, so I wow. think we can see that there's some things that we kind of have to keep in mind and just giving, handing everyone an app is not going to be the solution. Yeah. I can't, I can't criticize them too much on that metric of just opening it because in class, I just count attendance, whether they're there or not, I don't count consciousness. So I guess it'd be kind of a similar thing, right? We're like, Hey, you're there close enough. You know, it's appreciate, appreciate the effort. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a good way to count something there, but again, if you're trying to get meaningful kind of, mental health help or trying to change your mindset and frame, we do the, more than opening it. Opening it's a pretty low bar. It is. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 you know, as one of the things that I've done with uh, Dr. John Erickson, different John, even spells it differently at Bentley, it was, we interviewed a lot of mental health clinicians. I say a lot, about 28, seems like a lot, um, around their perception of these apps. And one person said something very interesting this one clinician said, I might not want my patient to use a mindfulness app. And I'm thinking, well, why in the world would you say that? Because to me, the mindfulness app is like the, you know, it's like the vanilla ice cream of apps. It's like, well, how could you, you know, it might not be your favorite, but everyone kind of likes it, right? It's just kind of there. What's yeah. wrong? How can vanilla be harmful? And the clinician said, well, what if my, what if the app gets the person to go through their, become mindful about different parts of their body? And what if they have localized trauma through some kind of, you know, um, assault in the past? And I went, yeah, that's a pretty good point. Um, you know, you don't know the, the steps towards mindfulness that the app is going through and whether or not those steps are going to in any way, shape or form be triggering to the person in terms of some past history or current mental health issues. And that's assuming the app actually does get you to do mindfulness and doesn't just waste your time and offer you kind of pseudo mindfulness or kind of someone's interpretation. So one, a very valid point of that person you talk to. And two, again, that that's in some ways, a lot of these apps can't even actually do real mindfulness, even though they say they do. Hmm. Well, that, that, uh, yeah, kind of the, the initial point you pointed out too, where it's that these apps have no. I, I don't know what the, the the medical version of that would be, but there's no sort of criteria of, of saying like this is, you know, the FDA warning on, on supplements that this is not intended to diagnose or, or treat an illness. Um, you know, apps, it's funny, that interesting that apps don't have that same kind of, uh, kind of, you know, warning system, I suppose, or, or lineup. They, they bury it into terms and conditions. If hmm. you read deep enough, you'll find it in like the legal jargon that's usually written at a level where, you need a college education to hire to even decipher it. Mm, yeah. It, it almost makes me think like the magic eight ball should come with a disclaimer that, you know, this device does not in any way predict the future. It's not a bad right? start. Right. <laughs> that, you know, on the one hand, you know, some of these things are, why would we expect them to do anything given that they're just a device on a phone and and to what extent culturally now this kind of goes into adam and my uh side of the street culturally how we elevate technology as somehow being more reliable more sophisticated more trustworthy more meaningful by virtue of it just existing as technology right so somebody someplace who must be smart because they made this thing that i don't know how to make and it looks cool um, it must be useful because otherwise why would it exist as technology in the first place Hmm. Exactly. It's. I mean, 
it's looking cool is a good first step, but it, it's the first step of many. Yeah, well, that, that's almost why on one level, like, you know, a lot of user experience research and design has a visual component to it. But then, um, you know, that's that's often as deep as it gets in terms of, of is it actually being good for behavior or not, right? Um, I wonder, I'd love to kind of think about the uh, the LAMP app and platform that you've been working on and and to think about this idea of, of also just the cross-cultural implications of doing this kind of longitudinal work using tech, using smartphones and stuff. Um, I, I'm not particularly sure from my brief reading about how far, for example, the global mental health and the, the, uh, the sharp program is, is along. Um, but I'm really, I'm really kind of curious about this too, in terms of, um, or to hear about that program specifically, but if there's any, any other kind of the projects that come from lamp, um, that are, are particularly exciting for you to talk about, I'd love to hear about them. Um, but I think this is really interesting too, because, you know, we do kind of have this fascination, this fetishization, right. With technology. And when something is sparkly and pretty, it seems like it's going to work. You know, even though we don't know what the work is that it would do, um, but it seems like Lamp is is one way trying to move around that by both being user friendly and, and accessible, but then also uh, demonstrating what it looks like to actually, you know, measure and put together longitudinal studies with symptomology to actually help people understand their own conditions. Yeah, so Lamp stands for Learn, Assess, Manage, Prevent, and we built it as an app in part as we were beginning to do this research, we were looking to kind of see we could use other people's tools, but they really wanted an arm and a leg and money for them, or they mm. wanted to keep a copy of all of the data we collected for themselves. And we just said, that doesn't sound right. Mm. So we were lucky to have a donor from the Natalia Mental Health Foundation who kind of got us started. And we worked with a company in New Hampshire called Zico and really built LAMP in an iterative way, really from the ground up by starting with our patients, talking of them, talking to clinicians, talking to different people who would use and saying, what would you want in an app? What would you not want? How can we build this? And we've kept it as open source software, which means the code is available online, so it can copy it, so it can use it. We don't have a business case around this. We're, we're not selling it. And it's been interesting kind of developing technology for use in mental health because we've learned a lot about how important it is to make the user experience impressive. And we're constantly learning. I think we've gone through 20 updates in the last two years hmm. because we're constantly getting feedback. We're constantly improving things. But what we've learned is the technology is all there today. There's enough sensors, there's enough computer code, there's enough algorithms, there's, there's enough, but can you build a system that kind of delights users, that engages users, that they find kind of meaning and excitement in? And in some ways it sounds easy, but if you think about how kind of diverse mental health is, how diverse different people are, how diverse the use cases are, we've really kind of had to be careful. We've had some successes. We've had some steps backwards on how do we kind of make a tool and keep the focus on a tool that's broad enough that everyone can use, but that also kind of offers enough functionality that people kind of find value and meaning in it. Mm -hmm. So we've actually shared LAMP with a bunch of different sites. Boston University is using it for research studies. Cal State Northridge in Los Angeles is using it. There's a group in Ottawa in Canada using it. I think there's a group in Bulgaria that's using it. Well, I know there is. There's actually a group in Africa that's going to get a study off the ground using it. We're working with people in Australia. So it's really fun to kind of have a consortium of different sites beginning to work together because mm -hmm. the feedback you get from people, again, different cultures, different use cases, it really is fantastic on all the different ways that people want to use technology and how you kind of never imagined these tools could be used that people find uses for. I, I think I read an article. Uh, I know I read an article, so I shouldn't say I think. I know I read an article that went something about that, the you know, in terms of cultural impacts on something like schizophrenia, that the voices people hear in different cultural contexts can be different. So mm -hmm. you, um, Americans can hear like voices that I think I might be mischaracterizing it, but might hear voices that are more like angry 
and uh, abusive. Go figure. Whereas people like uh, this one part of Africa, I think it might have been um, Ghana, uh, they heard voices that were uh, far more, uh, you know, gentler or you know, familiar or something, right? The point being that culture can influence and impact how mental illness uh, is experienced as a thing by those who are experiencing it, um, one, and two, therefore, and also culture can influence how people use an oriented technology. And so therefore, three, you put those two things together, you have, as you're talking about, John, a unique kind of environmental or cultural technological ecosystem in which these things are all coming together. Exactly. And I think what we're learning as we can begin to collect data across the world, what is common to kind of core mental illnesses, what parts are different, but if we can kind of find what are those common elements, that may be a way that we can kind of begin to one day learn about how do we look out for those as early warning signs? Can we use those for prevention efforts? And realize again that people have different experiences. Can we use those to kind of make sure we customize and give culture responsive care? So I think as we begin kind of learning more about these illnesses with these new tools, I think we have an opportunity to eventually move the field again to answer questions you really couldn't think about. Because we, we talk about kind of like emergency rooms and psychiatry, hospitalization, but we we don't always talk as much about prevention, right? About kind of stopping these things before they happen. And again, we've seen fields like cardiology really move towards prevention, right? We've seen kind of care for strokes move towards prevention. But I think we, we really do need to move mental health towards prevention. And in part, there's going to be many parts, there's going to be many aspects or part of that journey. But one of them is going to be bringing this new data that really helps us kind of inform about how can we prevent these illnesses in the first place. And on that point of us, this is like one of the things that I was looking at and I know that you're interested in. Do clinicians want this? I mean, this this becomes one of those questions about, on the one hand, just because we can, does it mean we should? And to what extent would a clinician, whether it be a psychiatrist, an LICSW, a counselor or whomever, or a clinical psychologist, are they going to be able to, in the course of doing their treatment, which, you know, of meeting their group or their individual patient, also have the bandwidth to integrate all of this stuff into the course of that therapeutic relationship? And to what extent is this something for them that they just see as like one more thing that I got to deal with on top of all the other things that I have to deal with as well? It's a really good point. As we talked about earlier, if you're going to give people all the data all the time, you're not going to really help them understand what is signal, what's noise. Clinicians, for a very good reason, don't want that. That's going to make care less efficient and less productive. If these are tools that people can customize, both the patient and clinician together, and use them as a team to answer the question they care about, or kind of offer the skills and recommendations that make sense in that situation, I think then people will use it. So in part, it's making sure these things are customizable for the end users to answer their questions, not the questions that the app maker or technology maker thinks. Second, I do think it involves some workflow redesign. I think clinical workflow is one of the main reasons that clinicians kind of right. are worried about these. And redesigning the clinical workflow is doable, but that does take some buy-in from larger systems to say this data is important, that it's valuable. You know what they say, Adam? You know what they say? What do they say? It always comes down to implementation. They do say that, don't they? I do. You know, well, I, I think that you do. That's true. I think one of the things that's really interesting about this also, I'm just thinking in a much broader sense too, is that uh, for example, a previous conversation we had a couple of weeks ago with uh, with the technologist Byron Reese about AI and machine learning and, and what role these these technological advancements might have on jobs and work. Um, I can't help but wonder about you know if if we are adding in these new elements and new you know inputs of of information and and in essence new kinds of data that we need to learn to read. 
um, if this doesn't mean that there may actually be, this may be like an, a really interesting space of new kinds of work that are coming out. I mean, there may even be these new kind of digital clinicians, we may call them, or, or you know, data scientists for medicine only or something. So they're not, they're not just reading SQL databases and, and, you know, updating their AJAX on their code, but they're uh, actually like trained to read this specific kind of data. And so I, I kind of wonder like if there is, we're, you know, we're entering these interesting hybrid spaces of even new kinds of careers might come out of these, these, um, you know, these chimera, as it were. I think, yes, it has to. Our team actually has kind of created a role called a digital navigator, hmm. where we train someone to help kind of people download, set up apps, troubleshoot, customize the LAMP app for each person. So again, the clinician isn't spending all the time kind of rewriting the survey questions or kind of getting the app customized for each thing help people make smart decisions about picking apps, make sure that the data quality looks okay. In some ways you can think about it in radiology, the radiologist actually isn't the one who usually is taking the image, right? They're, hmm. they're, sometimes they are, but sometimes it's a tech, a technologist, right? They're hmm. not the one kind of doing, make sure the quality works, they're kind of, so you can imagine that there's some role for a digital navigator, this kind of new person on the healthcare team who kind of helps the technology work, who kind of serves as the glue. And mm -hmm. I think what's really exciting about this role in mental health and behavioral health, this is a great role, not only for someone's kind of first job in healthcare, but someone who has lived experience of mental illness, kind of what we call kind of a peer specialist. What a fantastic job to kind of have peer specialists become these kind of digital navigators and really supply their expertise and knowledge towards this whole new kind of dimension of mental health. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to me, that, that, that sounds that sounds incredibly interesting in, in a you know positive direction that it's, it's, you know, leveraging the opportunity spaces that come out of doing something new, right? And you as an engineer, as a, as, a, as a doctor, as working in all these spaces yourself anyway, I've seen, right, even coming up with and putting LAMP together is this consortium of, of people that weren't working in the same way together before this anyway. And you know, it's, it is interesting to see, like, I'm one of the other things that, you know, what is technology in a definitional sense, right? But, um, you know, something that helps augment the human capacity to do something. And, and it's interesting in this way, too, where it's like it augments our capacity to, um, you know, capture and leverage data, but then also brings people together in new ways to read it, to clean it, to make sure that it's useful. Uh, and then ultimately to then help provide a more efficient and effective form of care for people. And it's so interesting, too, for something like mental health that, you know, so often goes underreported. Uh, and, and undiagnosed in many people, especially in, in different places around the world. And even that you mentioned, Gary, this really interesting idea that makes sense that I had I had never really thought about that if, if people with schizophrenia or hearing other kinds of voice dissociative identity disorder in different cultures may experience that, like the kinds of, of things they see or hear would be different um, is, is fascinating, you know? And so there is I don't know. Maybe I'm just kind of like geeking out about the the frontier capacity of this. That there's so much uh, that can be done in this space, and that we're seeing like a really exciting area of it. I think with the work that you're doing, you can geek out. I think it's okay. It's it's, it's geekable. It's, <laughs> yeah. This is a very geekable topic. I think <laughs> this is a safe space. It's a safe space to geek, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's that's a new title of the podcast: Geek Space. Geek Space. Safe Space Geeks. <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. And, and one of the things that John hasn't talked about, but I'm going to get him to right now because I'm going to say John hasn't talked about it yet, is the rate of mental illness increase, but not the rate of increase of clinicians to service those who have mental illness. So on the one hand, it's a luxury, right? This, Yeah, I'm a therapist. I have this new tool that I can use to work with my patient. On the other hand, you have a lot of people who are in need of some kind of mental health support that can't get access to it because either there's not enough people in their place, they don't have insurance, um, or for, you know, there's a stigma associated with them going to go get mental health care and they don't want to deal with that stigma. So to what extent does this start to fill that gap that, ex that exists between the number of people who are in need of mental health services and who are actually getting mental health services? You know, I think in every country around the world, US included, we just don't have enough mental health providers. And we're not training enough mental health providers. Again, the United States to any country that you can name, there just aren't enough people and there are not going to be enough people. And I think that's where we do kind of need to say, what are scalable solutions? 
And as you said, kind of everything comes down to implementation. We've seen kind of in the last week, at least when, of when this podcast recorded, that really the coronavirus crisis really took down those implementation barriers to telehealth. And people have really begun to embrace it and use it. I think that we still have a lot of implementation barriers to kind of using the next wave of technology, which in part would be what we'd call a, this is a geek out space, we'll just say asynchronous telepsychiatry, right? Mm, well, there you go. Video, when yeah. you do a video visit that's synchronous, right? You're communicating back and forth in real time with a person. Asynchronous technologies, again, you could perhaps be sending a message. You could kind of get a reply back later. You could even perhaps record a video and get a message back later. Asynchronous is a lot more scalable than synchronous. And I think thinking about kind of how do we build and design asynchronous kind of mental health systems, that's where we're really going to kind of meet the need and serve a lot of people. And there's a lot of interesting things happening in that asynchronous kind of telemental space, but they're not all ready for prime time. That that's, makes me think about, that takes me back to high school when I would call up a girl and she wouldn't call me back. Hey, it's Gary again. I <laughs> uh, just wanted to let you know, uh, you know, that I'll call, give a call. How you doing? Give me a call back. Bye. Hi. I just want to make sure you got the message. Uh, yeah, give me a chance. Give me a call back. Hi. I don't know if that thing got erased or not. It kind of it kind of clipped out. So just make sure you call me. Bye. Think how many you could reach with this asynchronous method, right? You couldn't talk to 10 at once. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> We've proven the scalability. Alexa always has to talk back. She always has to answer, right? She does. Well, fe- I mean, fe- feedback is an important part of the user experience, right? If it doesn't ever respond to you, then it, you know. <laughs> and, that, and that reminds me, John, didn't you give people like in one of your studies, a bunch of Alexas and they started to do things like dress them up like as their friends and stuff like that? I mean, some people have got, some people make attachments. I mean, it's not unreasonable, right? Some people, if you have an Alexa, you have one of these smart speakers, there has been documented cases where people kind of form an attachment or a relationship and they kind of imbue kind of meaning into it. You can almost think about kind of idea of a, a transitional object, kind of thinking back to kind of like hmm. classic psychoanalytical theory, right? Like children have their blanket, which in part can be a representation of their mother and bring them comfort when the mother leaves. Certainly you can think about for some people, technology can serve that role too. Right. And hmm. what's, there's actually been some interesting research kind of saying how much of, let's say, these apps working well is kind of the fact that people are imbuing value and meaning into the app versus what the app is actually doing. This kind of gets us to like, what is the placebo response? And placebo is not a bad thing. It's just saying, what is the app doing? What is the role of perhaps expectations and other things that we don't fully understand yet in today? And I think the thing I'd love to see you guys work on is how do you quantify the role of design in kind of improving people's mental health? Right. Hmm. How can improved design lead to direct, tangible benefits in people recovering, doing well, finding meaning into kind of these mental health apps and software? I, I think we're seeing where design is going to fit directly into health and good design is going to make people healthier. Hmm. We hope, right? I mean, the idea of design, you know, designing, design, make a difference, designing, making a difference, if I can spit that out, but also designing for whom, right? And this goes back to who's the audience, who's the user. And in this kind of space, as we've talked about before, there's multiple audiences. There's the patient who's actually using it. There's a clinician who might integrate it into his or her workflow. There is the caregiver who might also be an audience for this. And there might be other healthcare professionals, the general practitioner, um, one time I went into my GP's office for an appointment and I said to him, here, I printed out all the food I ate for the last two weeks from my, from my phone. And he just looked at me and said, well, why, why, why the hell would I want that? I'm like, I don't know. Cause I could. <laughs> and so he's like, all right, fine. And put it into my file and probably never looked at it again. You know, so, you know, who are we designing for and, and why, and going back to this issue of customizability, um, can we make this thing? look one tool look different to different audiences like almost an enterprise system so that they're able to get the utility they need out of it for their own purposes exactly and that it's it's a challenge it's a worthy challenge and an important one but not easy that's why people like you guys exist right that's exactly why this podcast geek space exists (laughs) 
That's right. And, and why they called anthropologists and sociologists to help solve the existential crisis of our time, how to make people better with technology. That's why our disciplines exist, right, Adam? That's exactly right. You know, I mean, we, we, once once we finally realized, you know, after after years of working in in classrooms, we decided to go back out into the world, and, and design was there waiting to, to needed to uh, to be un, unpacked and unplugged, you know, and understand what it means to actually use it for good, you know. Um, and it's so interesting too, because it's just like even in a broad sense, right, that we see things like user experience design. Uh, you know, about making an app delightful, right? But I, I'm really, really intrigued by this question that you raised, John, of, you know, how do we like pay attention to what meaning do users imbue into the actual app versus what is the app doing? What is it designed to do, right? And so how do we be intentional, you know, beyond, uh, you know, making something a a usable, understandable, fun experience, but to, to also like just be aware of like, yeah, what role does design play in actually improving health outcomes, Versus just making me use the app, which could like lead to improved health outcomes itself by making me use the app more and collecting more data, for example. But, you know, what what can we do to like make design take the next step, right? That's actually being in direct, uh, you know, line of, of producing better health outcomes itself. Um, yeah, so I guess I guess we're on the case now. That's good. All right. Yeah, you guys are going to be busy for a while. I think so. <laughs> and it reminds me of the old the old example of Eliza, right, where. You know, you had this thing that people were chatting into and as a therapeutic encounter and they were deriving value from it. But the responses that were provided were really not in any way meaningful. It also reminds me of one of the founders of the type of sociology I do, a guy named Harold Garfinkel, talked about the documentary method of interpretation. Don't ask me to explain it. It gets complicated and confusing. But one of the experiments he did was he had a person come in to talk to a quote unquote counselor. And when the person talked to the counselor, the counselor would just recite back something random. Hmm. And the people would leave the, 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 the encounter saying, yeah, that actually helped me out quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it was, you know, this idea of how much of the work of the therapeutic intervention is on the person who is going and how they perceive whether it's working or not. Yeah. There, hmm. There's a lot of things happening at once. It's, it's a dynamic, complex space. It is, which which was why we have smart people like you trying to, and, and, and smart people like us, right, Adam? Smart people like us trying to figure this stuff out. So where do you see this, you know, going? I, I would say five years, but that's like even too far away within the next year, given the, the firewall of telehealth has broken down in this moment. What do you see happening as people start to clamor for or start to make use of more digital psychiatric tools and more of the technology integrated into the clinical encounter? I think we're going to see a lot more demand for implementation efforts and kind of understanding how these things work in the real world. The first step is, again, we've seen a lot of interesting potential, but especially as we kind of begin to use these apps and other technologies, the kind of practical day-to-day -day questions, how do we design a clinic? How do we design a workflow? What does a patient encounter look like? We know we can use these things. We're seeing their value kind of in these crisis times. But once things go back to normal, and they will, I think that's going to be a lot of interesting questions coming up all at once at the same time. And it reminds me of a phrase that Adam and I like to use experience design. And it really does come down to that. It's this, you know, looking at the whole gestalt, the whole context and understanding how to design it from a, um, from an experience centric perspective and not just for the patient, but also for the clinician, for anybody else who's making use of that space. And I think it's a, it's an exciting opportunity to make use of these tools that we have as ethnographers and as people who study context and behavior in context to leverage those in a particular design space to address this really pressing need of mental health uh, wellness. Hmm. Yeah. And it makes me, I mean, cause it's, it's interesting too, cause you know, uh, you know, approaching this from, if you walk into this, this room that we're talking in right now and you see an app and you say, okay, I'm thinking about this from a technological standpoint, right? This, this user experience perspective, but then um, I love this. I love that we're bringing it here. Cause this is, this is really, I think, uh, uh, I think is, it makes sense of like, we need to go beyond the digital to then think about the experience ecosystem itself, or, you know, we might also call service design of what does the front end and back end look like of how are people using this app in what context, what data is it collecting, you know, but then thinking about these practical 
implications of what does it mean to rethink the patient experience? What does it look like having these tools? What does it look like to have a hospital experience uh, with these tools? Uh, and also just even now, like, I mean, to bring it back to we're here in, in 2020 in the end of March and, and the world is reeling from COVID-19 and that we are finding ourselves uh, socially isolated and, and, and with much less mobility that we keep people can't move around in public as easy. And so what do these experiences look like uh, you know, today, but then also really, you know, how does, how does, you know, what's happening today also help us think about what would come tomorrow, you know, because what we do today, of course, affects, you know, the direct outcomes of tomorrow also. And so I think it's really, really compelling to, to, you know, and refreshing to hear that, that the practical questions are, are kind of on your mind of what's coming next, uh, because it isn't just about the next update, but it's about how does this app fit into this larger ecosystem um, of people using it in the first place. Right. And, and of course, in different places around the world too. And one of the things I noticed, John, also on your LinkedIn account is that it says, we are hiring. What's that all about? So <laughs> we are looking for a kind of PhD student or postdoc around data science. As we kind of talk about, we have a lot of interesting data coming in. Hmm. So we're learning that hiring people in 2020, they don't always come directly to you. You have to go out and look for them. So on your LinkedIn account. That makes sense. On your sense. LinkedIn account. So that's kind of right. our... We're saying, can we get some folks to help us look at this interesting data coming in and help us make sense of it and learn new things from it? Well, it seems like an exciting opportunity to engage in a, you know, a, almost a futurist kind of environment where the the future there is not has not been designed to use the word. And so you're really kind of constructing and making it as as you go along and engage with that data set. Yeah. Well, that's fun. Yeah, that's good things. Right? That's a that's a positive that's a positive direction. I like it. Yeah, and so like, what else is uh, next for for the digital psychiatric or uh, digital psychiatry lab at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center located in Boston, Massachusetts? So, what? How are you all looking at this moment and also beyond the moment of designing that digital space? So, we've actually started what we call a digital psychiatry clinic. You can see we kind of like the word digital, maybe we overuse it, but <laughs> e-clinic, e-clinic, digital clinic. So we actually see people face-to-face -face and then we kind of have them use LAMP or different apps if it makes sense, kind of between visits to help us learn more about their condition, help people learn new, new skills. We're seeing people video visits now, but a lot of the things we talked about, we put directly into practice into our digital psychiatry clinic because I think if we have a digital navigator there, we have our clinician, we're seeing people, we're building rapport, but certainly we can use some of this digital data today, right? We, we don't need to run machine learning to kind of learn about what people's step counts are and their mood to kind of help people understand how sleep impacts their anxiety. There's a lot of important clinical questions that we could do today. And I think one advantage of building the digital clinic was we did get to redesign the workflow. We said we're going to be right. a clinic, and because we're going to be a new clinic, we can in part make sure that the workflow supports technology. Here's how we're going to look at data in the visit. We even kind of said we're only going to look for dat at data together of patients for so long because we don't want the whole visit to be looking at a screen. We want people looking at each other in eye contact. Mm. So right. I think as we build out and expand the digital clinic, we'll continue to learn more practical hands-on lessons about how to kind of implement this. But I think you can look for kind of the LAMP app expanding, growing, hopefully having new features, trying to better delight and engage people. It's always a continual progress. I don't think we'll ever be at the end, but I think you can look for updates in that. The digital clinic certainly expanding. We're beginning to do some work around app evaluation, trying to make tools to help people make better decisions about picking a safe and right smartphone app without kind of giving people a list of here's the top 10 because that's just useless. The top 10 apps are out of date by the time you probably make that list. And who am I to say what the top 10 apps for every single person are? Can, can the LAMP app uh, see my browser history? It cannot. No. That's well. That, I mean, that's good. I wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, not that for me. I'm just thinking for other people who <laughs> might want to hide their search history of any kind. You know. No, I mean, generally, whenever we use it in either research studies, 
we get signed informed consent. If we're using it in the clinic, we talk to people about why we're using it and what it means, and we get people we get people's consent. So I think the field, we never want to be doing mass surveillance on people without them agreeing and understanding why it makes sense for them to do it. Because again, if you lose people's trust, you really, you're not really delivering healthcare then, right? If you have no trust, you really just, that's the foundation of all of health is trust, but especially mental health. So anytime the technology kind of gets between us and the patient, or there's kind of a breach of trust, that's just a non-starter. Hmm. Makes sense. I think that's uh, probably a good place to to end things. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, trust. You got to start and end with trust, I think. You got to start and end with trust and also uh, sociology and, and anthropology. You <laughs> and the, start yeah. and end with trust and those things. And then and then we'll be, you know, the world will be a better place as, as a result of both. Agreed. So, John, thanks so much for taking the time. I know you're probably very busy uh, with everything going on. Um, but appreciate you swinging by and chatting Much with us about yeah. digital psychiatric tools. No, thank you guys. This was terrific. We want to thank Dr. John Toros for helping us understand the world of digital psychiatry, how it can be designed to deliver better mental health outcomes, and how the future of digital psychiatry might evolve. There's a lot more to discover, and there's never been a greater need than now. And really, if you look at John's career, he's definitely one of the leading voices in the field. Hopefully you got some ideas how to manage your own mental health during this time. We could all use it. We would love to hear about your own experiences using digital psychiatric tools. So feel free to leave your comments at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And we'll make sure to observe all HIPAA regulations regarding patient health care privacy. Thank you for listening to Experience by Design, especially if you no longer have a commute to take in podcasts. We have over a thousand downloads now, which is really, really remarkable, and we're really thankful for all of your support. There's been a tremendous response to our last episode on designing a more inclusive healthcare system, so make sure to go check it out if you haven't heard it already, and make sure to check out all of our past episodes at experiencexdesign.com. Let us know what's your favorite, and let us know what you would like to hear more of. Finally, we hope you're all sheltering in place and hanging in there. It's definitely going to be a rough ride. Let us know how you are doing. Make sure to physically isolate, but stay socially connected. And make sure to be kind to each other whenever possible. We could all use a little extra kindness right now. So stay tuned, stay well, and we'll see you all next week in the Experience by Design studios. Take care, everybody.